This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by our pals at WCScreens.com. As reliable as the old toss sweep, go to WCScreens.com for nationwide shipping, wholesale prices, and just like you're fighting Irish, they are the gold standard. WCScreens.com. And on with the show. After giving the 1920 Notre Dame football team a thorough review, great American writer and essayist Ring Lardner appraised the team as follows. Notre Dame has one signal. Pass the ball to George Gipp and let him use his own judgment. Fair. Historian Francis Wallace called Gipp the most peculiar kind of saint. Gipp biographer Jack Cavanaugh called him a charming rogue. Friend of the show, writer, and Gip historian Will Fuller called him the closest thing college football has ever had to a James Dean. You know, sometimes it can be difficult to separate fact and myth with George Gip, an incredibly interesting man who possessed such contrasting personality traits. So, to help ground this legendary figure, let's do a deep dive on the game that made Gip famous. The 1920 game against Army. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and I am your host, and I have a great story for you here today. It's actually kind of famous, or at least the protagonist certainly is. Yes, my friends, we are talking about George Gipp, the Gipper himself. So you might be thinking, why a random Gipp episode? Well, I felt it was appropriate because as of about the time this episode is being released, we are ringing in the 102nd anniversary of the famous game we will be discussing today, the 1920 game against Army, which was played on October 30th of that year. And it's actually been a while since uh, I did a Gip-themed episode, and I know the show has kind of picked up a ton of new listeners since the last one, so this one gives me an opportunity to introduce or even reintroduce Gip to some folks who may be less familiar with his story. And frankly, I think there's a good chance that even if you're a Notre Dame football-loving family or household, you may have heard bits and pieces of the Gip lore, but you may not be wholly familiar with him. But also, admittedly, Gip is probably one of my favorite athletes in history, so this does give me an opportunity to talk about him a little bit, and I'm actually going to talk about why he is one of my favorites here in just a moment. But first, a very special thank you to the folks who donate to the show and keep us on the tracks. The Consensus All-Americans. They include Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, and Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana. Eternally grateful for every last one of you, and also to WCScreens.com, our banner sponsor. And just know if you'd like to get your name called as a Consensus All-American yourself, please feel free to visit the virtual tip jars at paypal.me slash 
Onward to Victory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash Onward to Victory podcast for ongoing monthly support. Everything is so appreciated, folks. And also, please, please subscribe to the show, too, so you can be alerted to every new offering when it's released. If you're holding an iPhone in your hand right now, that purple podcast icon, hit subscribe. And if your heart's feeling a bit warm, leave a review, too. As I said, every little bit helps. So why an affinity for GIP? First, we are talking athleticism that can only be described as dazzling. So good, in fact, that I am of the belief, other than the great Jim Thorpe, possibly Jim Brown, there was never a better football player in relation to his contemporaries or his peers. I'm not comparing Jim Brown and George Kipp head-to-head per se, but just how they stacked up against everyone else they played against. He was just that much better than everyone else out there. Kind of like how people remember Thorpe and Brown. Almost like... It wasn't even fair to the other team. As far as the pages of Notre Dame football history, Gipp's name is still all over it. I don't know if people are really fully aware of that, but his 8.1 yards per carry in 1920 is still the best for an Irish rusher during any single season. He's still 10th in program history in rushing yards though he has at least 100 fewer carries than anyone else in the top 10. He was the team leader in rushing, passing, and scoring in 1918, 1919, and 1920. He was the first Notre Dame player to be named to the Walter Camp All-American list, first team that is. His 1920 game against Army that we're going to be talking about still remains to this day one of the most statistically prolific games in fighting Irish football history. Let that sink in for a moment. Elmer Layden, who was not only a head football coach at Notre Dame, but also one of those vaunted four horsemen in 1924, said this of Gipp, quote, We on campus look upon George Gipp as the greatest football player ever turned out at Notre Dame, one whose ability has been surpassed, if at all, by few cleated warriors since the game was introduced in this country, end quote. The captain of the 1920 team, Frank Coughlin, simply said this about his teammate. George Gipp was the greatest athlete I have ever known, for to know him was to love him, end quote. So without further ado, Onward to Victory presents the greatest game on the gridiron for the gallivanting George Gipp right after this. All right, well, let's start with a fun one here. Uh, For as good as George Gipp would prove to be at the game of football, he had no intention of playing the sport when he arrived on campus from his Upper Peninsula home of Laurium, Michigan in the fall of 1916. In fact, he hadn't played much football at all. He actually went to Notre Dame on a baseball scholarship. For one of the greatest athletes of his generation, no one else in his family were really noteworthy athletes at all. He was among the youngest of eight children in his family, and Laurium was a hard scrabble mining town. 
and hard physical work was currency. Gip, kind of on the other hand, was notoriously a happy-go-lucky type, so he was actually the black sheep of his own family, if you will. And considering all that, maybe that's why he went to Notre Dame as a 21-year-old freshman in 1916. He had spent time between his high school and college years, according to his biographer, George Gekas, quote, After high school, Gip spent much time at Jimmy O'Brien's pool room, which was three blocks from his house on Heckless Street. For money, Gip would drive the cab on weekends, ferrying copper miners to and from the bars and the local house of prostitution, end quote. Nonetheless, he lands at Notre Dame on a baseball scholarship, and for a school dominated by Catholics, Gip was a Protestant. For a school that was slowly building its sterling academic reputation, uh, Gip was a terrible student who had actually never graduated from high school. But Gip was someone who struck people as egalitarian. He, despite all of his visible athletic talents, never thought of himself as better than anyone. For someone as skilled as he was, he was actually a pretty modest guy. Though he was a bit bashful, he was very approachable. He was very polite, but very direct. He treated people kindly, often passing flasks of whiskey or a bowl of hot soup to the homeless of South Bend. But more than anything else, he marched to the beat of his own drum, and people absolutely loved him for it, especially on Notre Dame's campus, which kind of preached and practiced compliance and uniformity at that time, and Gip had the audacity to skirt pretty much every single rule. But Gip didn't smirk these rules with a smirk or a devilish grin, but kind of more of a light, casual carefreeness, which was really his calling card. It was during a freshman football game in 1916 that Gip kicked a 62-yard field goal reputedly into the wind. And that was the beginning of Gip, the football player, if you will. After his first year at Notre Dame, he went home to Larium and played center field for the local semi-professional baseball team. It was that summer in 1917 that he was drafted into the Army to fight in what would later be called World War I, or the war to end all wars at the time. Gip wasn't the kind of guy who really wanted to shoot anyone, or much less be shot at. So he kind of said, nah. When the train left with a batch of new conscripted recruits, guess what? Gip wasn't on the train. The local draft board could have arrested him, easily. But they also said, nah. <laughs> Just everyone loved the dude, and honestly, the baseball team still needed a center fielder after all. So as I mentioned a minute ago, when he was at Notre Dame, he followed virtually none of the rules. He didn't really go to class with any frequency, and he also didn't stay in the residence halls. At bare minimum, these were the two standards that Notre Dame students would have to follow. Uh, but he played billiards day and night. And I mean day and night. There are accounts where he would play billiards for 24 hours straight and nearly 48 hours straight at the Oliver Hotel in downtown South Bend. Which, coincidentally, was also where he stayed. But Gip was the absolute toast of the town. And... 
as big of a celebrity as South Bend had at this time. Even the sport that Gipp went to college to play, baseball, really didn't end up suiting him. During his first year on the team, he ignored a bunt signal from his third base coach and opted to take a full cut at the next pitch. (laughs) Despite the fact he sent the ball sailing over the fence for a home run, his coach gave him an earful for ignoring the sign. And knowing what we know about Gip, that probably shouldn't be too surprising that at the time, that was the end of his baseball career at Notre Dame. But he does end up developing this really interesting relationship with then-assistant football coach Knut Rockney. And I firmly believe that Gip probably wouldn't have played for any other coach in the country for at least as long as he played under Rockney. But eventually, Rockney does become the head coach, as everyone's aware, and that was in 1918, which also happened to be the season that was shortened, kind of due to America's involvement in World War I, but, but it was really the subsequent Spanish flu pandemic that put the brakes on pretty much everything. But during that shortened 1918 season, which was Gipp's second season playing football, at least at the varsity level, he scored six touchdowns and kicked seven extra points and averaged five and a half yards per carry. Not too shabby, really. But in 1919, Gipp was even better, scoring seven touchdowns and averaging 6.9 yards per carry. And not for nothing, he completed 57% of his passes, which was damn near unheard of by many programs at that time. And defensively, he intercepted three more passes. The Irish went 9-0 and on the season and were later deemed co-national champions. But from the time that Rock was named head coach, one of his main charges was to keep the free-spirited yet supremely athletic Gip on Notre Dame's campus and, of course, eligible for the football team. And for at least a time, it looked like Rockney was going to fail on both measures. In the spring of 1920, Gip was expelled from school for missing too much class. But in looking kind of through the whole situation, the timing does seem odd. He had been missing too much class since he arrived in 1916. And I'm not saying he got F's on his transcripts. He did such little schoolwork that his transcripts were often blank. They had nothing on them. He never went to class. He stayed at the Oliver Hotel and shot pool all day and night. A lot of folks said again that he rarely slept and nothing would get in the way of his billiards play. So it's just interesting because Gip possessed a brilliant mind. His friends and his peers always said Gip had a brilliant mind. But he was undoubtedly a terrible student. And everyone knew it, even opposing coaches. It actually reminds me of an anecdote I once read about the 1919 Notre Dame-Nebraska game. So after the game, a 14-9 Notre Dame victory that it was Gip who essentially put it on ice, the Nebraska coach approached Gip after the game and asked him which courses he was taking at Notre Dame. And Gip replied, plumbing, which both men obviously knew didn't exist at Notre Dame. So immediately after his expulsion, several schools began attempts to court Gip away from Notre Dame. And why not? 
If he's kind of effectively a free agent, wouldn't you want George Gitt playing for your football program? So Rockney kind of gave the classic, nah, not on my watch type of move. When 80 prominent, 80 prominent local South Bend businessmen signed a petition to urge the Notre Dame administration to reinstate GIP, or they'd pull their sponsorship dollars, it has been strongly suspected that this was a power move orchestrated by Rockney himself, though never proven. But however, knowing what we know about Rockney, it would not be at all surprising if he was the one pulling the strings behind this. So due to the intense external pressure, the school administration actually acquiesced and Gip returned to Notre Dame. Which then, I suppose, brings us up to the 1920 campaign, which was Gip's fifth and final season. So the Irish reeled off four consecutive victories to begin the season, mostly against lesser opponents, but they did go out to Nebraska and win there. The team's fifth game, though, however, is one that the players, coaches, pundits, and fans alike had circled on the calendar, and that was the annual game against Army. The 1920 game marked the seventh time the schools had met. Army had carried the game in 1914 and 16, while Notre Dame carried it in 1913, 15, 17, and the previous season in 1919. It was typically a knockdown, dragout affair, and 1920 didn't look to be any different. And just as a quick note, because oftentimes we remember Rockney as kind of the coach he was in the late 20s or even 1930, his last full season coaching. But just keep in mind, when this 1920 game was played, they were exactly seven years removed from the 1913 game in which Rockney and his teammate quarterback Gus DeRay kind of revolutionized the forward pass. So Rockney is still very much a young man. And he may have gotten along very well with Gip because, frankly, they were pretty close to each other in age. But the 1920 game was held at the Plain on West Point's campus. So it was a home game for Army, and the stadium held about 10,000 people. And afterwards, it was estimated that about 5% of them were Notre Dame fans, so about 500 people. Given that statistic, make no mistake, this was a hostile environment for the visiting Irish. And it was before the game that Ring Lardner, when asked how Rockney's boys could possibly win this football game, that he replied with the aforementioned, quote, Notre Dame has one signal. Pass the ball to George Gipp and let him use his own judgment, end quote. Every sports writer in the country worth their salt made their way to West Point for the October 30th contest. The weather? I guess I'm just a really good Midwesterner, uh, specifically Indiana, where I like to talk about the weather. But the New York Herald described the mildness of the day as, quote, fair today with slow rising temperature with fresh west winds, end quote. Sounds like a lovely day to play some football. But if Gip was nervous for this game, which the winner would actually hold most of the national championship cards in their hand, he certainly didn't show it. Actually, before the game started, Gip took a few footballs to midfield. He looked at one set of uprights and calmly drop-kicked two footballs straight through them. Again, he's standing at midfield. So after doing that, he turned 180 degrees and kicked the other two footballs between the other set of uprights. 
which the cadets in the stands absolutely went nuts after this exhibition. But this matchup was dubbed a battle between superstars. Of course, you had Gip for Notre Dame, and there was a gentleman named Walter French for the Army. French was an All-American who had actually played successfully at Rutgers before going to the Army. And French was a fantastic athlete, and to speak to this, he would later enjoy a six-year career as a Major League Baseball player after college. And for the first half of the football game, the superstars absolutely ruled the roost. A 40-yard run by French keyed the cadets to their first touchdown and a 7-0 lead. However, the ensuing kickoff was returned 38 yards by Gipp to give the Irish some good field position to start their next drive. Gipp provided 23 yards of rushing and hit end Roger Kiley on a 25-yard pass, which set up a 5-yard touchdown run by Johnny Mohart, and the game was tied at 7-7. I would be remiss not to mention that George kicked the extra point to tie the game. But then Gipp returned an army punt 57 yards and then promptly found Kylie once again with a pass, this time a 38-yard strike for a touchdown. George kicked the extra point again, and the score stood 14-7, still in the first half. However, French and the cadets weren't going down without a fight. French caught a Gipp punt and raced 60 yards for a touchdown to tie the game at 14 apiece. Army ultimately took a 17-14 lead into halftime. It was late in the first half, deep inside Notre Dame territory, Gipp went against Rockney's wishes, and he gambled and ran a fake punt from his own end zone. While you virtually never see a fake punt from a team's own end zone today, it was absolutely unheard of in 1920. In fact, there were only two guys who knew the fake was on, and that was Gip and his favorite end, Roger Kiley. Just as they broke out of the huddle, he whispered to Roger, when I get the ball, tear ahead, I'll pass it to you. <laughs> so George received the snap, feigned a punt, and then reared back to toss the ball to Roger. An army was completely fooled. Reputedly, there was no one within 45 yards of Kylie as George heaved the pass and the ball sailed through the air. And Kylie dropped the only pass of his career. <laughs> Though the gamble didn't pay off, it certainly should have, but the Notre Dame defense actually held strong against Army, who then had to settle for a field goal at the end of the half. But regardless, Rockney furiously paced the sideline. Though the score favored Army, at least one guy in the press box felt a reckoning coming in the second half. And that was Grantland Rice, who, four years later, would famously dub Notre Dame's backfield as the Four Horsemen. He turned to the aforementioned Ring Lardner and said, quote, he's really something special. To which Lardner replied, quote, I think he's just getting started. In the locker room, Rockney absolutely waylaid into his guys. This anecdote comes by way of Jack Cavanaugh's The Gipper. Quote, In the Notre Dame locker room, Rockney proceeded to give what Hunk Anderson would say many years later was one of his best halftime pep talks. 
Before a game, a Rockney pep talk often would include such rallying calls as, go get him, hit him and knock him down, then hit him again, then knock him down and make him stay down. At halftime, though, Rockney tended to be caustically critical of individual players whom he felt had either made crucial mistakes or were not going all out in their blocking and tackling which to Rockney were far and away the most important aspects of football. As he spoke during halftime of the 1920 Army game, Rockney, still fuming from Gipps' pass from the Notre Dame goal line late in the half, spotted his star halfback in the corner, puffing on a cigarette. And you there, Gip, he said in a voice dripping with sarcasm. I guess you don't have any interest in this game. Look, Rock. I've got 400 bucks bet on this game, and I'm not about to blow it, Gip replied, evoking laughter from his teammates and even a grin from Rockney, end quote. And the next thing you know, the Irish were ready to play. And spurred by their leader, best player, and the guy who reputedly put 400 bucks of his own money for his team to win, play they did. After a scoreless third quarter, the scoreboard still read 17-14 Army heading into the final stanza. But the dazzling runs of Gip, cutting through the much larger army line like a knife to hot butter, had the Irish moving. Or, as the Indianapolis Star wrote the following day, quote, Gip cut the cadet line to shreds, end quote. He completed all of his passes in the third quarter to cue up a short Irish touchdown run, again by Johnny Mohart and a 21-17 Notre Dame lead early in the fourth quarter. After holding Army's offense to a punt on the next drive, Gip fielded that cadet punt and returned it 40 yards to near midfield. And Gip once again commandeered another touchdown drive and a 27-17 lead. A quick note. It may sound like Gip played quarterback, but he actually played left halfback. Sometimes he would take the snap and pass, other times he would take the snap and run, and yes, other times the quarterback, who happened to be Joe Brandy, by the way, would take the snap and hand it off to Gip, or Mohart, or whoever. It was a little less rigid in those days who took the snap and ran the play. And also, the teams on offense would kind of run different looks with different players aligned in different spots to try to confuse the opposing defenses as well. But anyway, with victory certain... Rockney took the bloodied and battered Gip out of the game with under a minute left. Not for nothing, show hero Chet Grant actually at this time entered the game for Joe Brandy at quarterback. Uh, given the show's body of work, I felt like I should include that. But anyway, statistically, George had gained 150 yards on 20 carries, good for 7.5 yards per attempt. He completed five of his nine passes for another 123 yards. And imagine if Kylie hadn't dropped that fake punt. But he had also returned punts and kickoffs for another 207 yards. Get a load of this. Not even counting his passing yards, this game against Army on October 30th, 1920, ranks as the second most all-purpose yards in a single game in Notre Dame football history. George's name on that date hangs above others such as Tim Brown, Rocket Ismail, Jim Seymour, Golden Tate, Vegas Ferguson, and everyone else you can think of, literally. 
and this wasn't even counting his passing yards, which are not part of the all-purpose yards. So make no mistake, this was one of the most dominant performances in a single game, perhaps the most dominant performance in a single game in Notre Dame football history. You just have to believe it. Decades later, Roger Kiley, who was of course George's favorite target that day, said as an 85-year-old man, quote, I have never seen an athlete get the acclamation George received when he walked off the field that day. He was tired and pale. His face was a little bloody. And the crowd at West Point all stood up, though nobody applauded. It was thrilling. Odd silence. End quote. So Notre Dame ran the table and were declared national champions in 1920. And exactly six weeks after the Army game was played, Gipp was informed that he had been selected to Walter Camp's All-American first team. And he was actually informed one day before the rest of the general public because he was dying in his hospital bed from a throat infection. After being told of his selection, he reputedly gasped through his ailing throat. That's Jake. Or, in today's parlance, cool. But just three days later, early in the morning on December 14th, 1920, and only 45 days after his heroics against Army, the Gipper died at age 25. Gip is larger than life, and I believe the best player ever to grace the gridiron for the Fighting Irish. I also believe, as alluded to earlier, that this legend and lore may actually fog up his actual accomplishments on the gridiron, where Gip's story has kind of grown legs and achieved a life of its own, so to speak. Do we know for sure that the deathbed exchange between Gip and Rockney ever happened? No, and we never will. Which exchange am I talking about? Well, the win one for the Gipper speech. And the phrase, win one for the Gipper, which has been become part of the American lexicon, and as the years have passed, I think fewer and fewer may be able to properly contextualize the provenance of this axiom. And... Others may think that the Gipper refers to, and only to, former President Ronald Reagan, who was, of course, one of the more popular figures in America for the latter half of the 20th century. Reagan, of course, happened to play George on the big screen in 1940, which not only made Reagan a star, Gipper back into the public conscience, but also the win one for the Gipper speech, an absolute staple. So, like I said... The idea of Gip may actually be foggy for many, a household name, but yet perhaps not very grounded. So don't ever lose sight of what we actually know. Gip was a one-of-a-kind person and an astounding football player, worth every bit of the hype because of days like October 30th, 1920 in West Point, New York. And I'll be right back with show wrap.
right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this latest offering. Believe it or not, this is episode number 71, and it's been a while since we did a Gip-themed episode. I think we've done two or three over the course of show history, but we've kind of given some overviews. I talked to a gentleman by the name of Will Fuller who wrote a book about George Gip, but that was last August, I think August 2021, so it was high time to do another one, and we had never really focused on a particular game. And so with the anniversary coming up, again, the 102nd anniversary, I thought, what better time than the present than to tackle the greatest game by George Gipp. So if you're just curious where you can get more Gipp information, as I said in the kind of the show run-up, that sometimes it can be hard to separate fact and myth as far as kind of the oral history of George Gipp, but there are plenty of good books, or at least books that have some good information about him in them. So what books did I use for this particular episode? Probably the biggest one was The Gipper by Jack Cavanaugh. I believe it was written in 2010, but it's a really, really quick read, but it's very, very informative and really does go out of its way to try to really capture the essence of Gipp. Another book I used was Rockney of Ages by Jeff Harrell. Jeff's a good friend of mine, but his book, Rockney of Ages, though it mostly delves in on Coach Rockney himself and also touches heavily on the mob bomb theory, where Rockney's plane was actually taken down by mobsters, Al Capone and the mob, to be more succinct, but it also has Rockney in his own words. So a couple chapters in the book is directly what Rockney said and wrote about George Gipp. So again, Rockney of Ages by Jeff Harrell. And then of course, my one of my standbys, which is Murray Sperber's Shake Down the Thunder, which is kind of an overall history of Notre Dame, but it talks about this era of Notre Dame football very well, very elegantly. So I'd always recommend anyone pick that one up just in case they're interested in just early Notre Dame history and early Notre Dame athletics history. I'd suggest you pick it up. But if you're looking for a good historical fiction work about George Gipp, and as I mentioned, he's been on the show before as a guest. He's a supporter of the show. He's a good friend. And that is called The Forever Year, a novel based on the real-life romance of George Gipp and Iris Trapier, and that's by Will Fuller. So check that one out. Even if it's not really your thing, it's a fantastic read. And I think of everything I've ever read about George Gipp and ever studied, uh, Will really goes out of his way to capture, again, just the spirit of Gip in perhaps the best way I, I have read, sincerely. So those are just some light reads if you're interested in learning a little bit more about George Gip. And I also use them in this episode as well. And so with that, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. I'd like to once again thank the Consensus All-Americans, those who donate to the show monetarily. That's Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, the aforementioned Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, and Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana. If you're looking to find that intro song, it's called Knut Rockney, which happens to be the theme song of the show. That is by Joseph Rakish. You can find that song, again, Knut Rockney by Joseph Rakish on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you listen to music. Go ahead and give it a spin or two. I wish you all well. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish.